Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting January 15, 2016, we talk with World Policy Institute fellow Jonathan Crystal about his two recent posts about Saudi Arabia and Iran on the World Policy blog, Escalation in the Persian Gulf and Rethinking the Iran Deal. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ Winter Issue, headlined Latin America on Life Support. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, as the campaign to succeed him heats up, President Obama used his final State of the Union address to outline where America stands in the world and what lies ahead. Pointing to global polls saying U.S. standing in the world has risen in recent years. He says America is now more respected abroad. Obama came to office pledging to end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The U.S. is now out of Iraq and has less than 10,000 troops in Afghanistan. Yet both countries remain deeply troubled and threatened by the Islamic State in one and the Taliban in the other. There was, surprisingly, scant mention of Iran, Syria and China, and none of North Korea. The president offered a nuanced view of what America's foreign policy should be. It contained a rebuke to those who see such policy in more binary terms. American leadership in the 21st century is not a choice between ignoring the rest of the world, except when we kill terrorists, or occupying and rebuilding whatever society is unraveling. Leadership means a wise application of military power and rallying the world behind causes that are right. Obama folded so-called soft power into his view of foreign policy. Medical assistance, food, helping others does as much, he said, to advance stability and American security than merely sending in the troops. And without mentioning any candidates by name, he said America must respect Muslims and that failure to do so only emboldens terrorists. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Few Middle East experts doubt that Saudi Arabia knew more or less exactly the kind of violent reaction that would follow its execution of Shiite Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr among nearly 50 other alleged terrorists in a single day as the new year began. That reaction included widespread Shiite protests, sacking of the Saudi embassy in Tehran, and severed or strained relations between Shiite Iran and prominent Sunni states including Sudan, Bahrain, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, and, of course, Saudi Arabia itself. The provocation and predictable response further widened centuries-old Shiite-Sunni divisions and further complicated the civil war in Syria and related actions against the Islamic State or ISIS, which has become increasingly brutal both on the battlefield and wherever its converts can be inspired to strike, from Paris to San Bernardino to Istanbul just this week and beyond. It also posed a major image problem for Washington 
as a longtime ally of the Riyadh regime, despite its long history of exporting extremism as well as oil, from funding radical religious schools across the region to supplying suicide skyjackers on 9-11. Most notably, the episode undermined what little hope Washington had for more stable regional relations growing out of the controversial Iran nuclear deal, now six months old. These and other related issues are addressed on the World Policy Institute blog by Jonathan Crystal, a fellow at the Institute and senior fellow at the Bard College Center for Civic Engagement. His new posts are headlined Escalation in the Persian Gulf and Rethinking the Iran Deal, and we talked about them recently for this podcast. Jonathan Crystal, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me. To begin, do you believe the Saudis did mean the execution of Nimr al-Nimr to provoke new hostility with Iran? Uh, yes, well, I think it was a deliberate provocation. Uh, I think that they are already engaged in hostilities with Iran uh, on multiple fronts. But I think what they were trying to do uh, was provoke an overreaction by Iran that would galvanize support for them within the region. And I think that they've succeeded in doing that. I don't by any means want to say that it was a good thing what they did. Um, I hesitate to label most things good or bad, but I think that they achieved what they wanted to achieve. Um, they could have held the sheikh uh, in prison, as they were already doing, uh, for the rest of his life, and I don't think any of us would have ever heard of him, frankly, uh, in the West. I think by executing him, they were hoping that Iran would overreact, and I think that's exactly what they got in the sacking of the embassy, uh, which looks bad for Iran, not just in the region, but if you are any state in the world with a diplomatic relationship with Iran, which is most states, then you have to think, well, is my embassy safe? Uh, and either Iran um, planned this to happen or they were unable to prevent it from happening. And if they were unable to prevent it from happening, and I think that's the route, that's the line that Iran is taking on this, that's almost worse uh, for them, because everyone has to worry, well, what happens when there's some sort of problem with our state? Is our embassy going to be safe? And I think that um, they've succeeded in people rethinking Iran, not just the deal, but just rethinking Iran, and in unifying support for them and trying to isolate Iran in the region to keep them uh, from expanding further and to keep them from reentering the international community um, in a way that they might like. Do you think uh, they also thought they might get more support uh, than they had recently from the United States, which pushed so hard for the nuclear deal? I think that they are always concerned about uh, the relationship with the United States. But I think that one of the reasons why you see this happening is that uh, Saudi Arabia is worried that the U.S. is uh, abandoning them for Iran. Uh, for a lot of reasons, and I think that they are looking for alternatives to the United States in the event that the U.S. Uh, changes its positions further uh, or, or further distances itself from Saudi Arabia. Not necessarily an intentional distancing, but as our reliance on their oil production declines, and, and it's almost totally declined, uh, and as the Obama administration uh, their emphasis seems to be on this deal uh, and looking at Iran as the future. And Iran has a much more dynamic economy. Uh, in some ways, it's, it's a, in some ways, it's a more natural ally, uh, although that is 
way down the line, and I'm not saying that that is going to happen soon. But the view from Saudi Arabia, um, I think, is is one of increasing isolation and concern about the United States. And it is going to seek other alternative allies or try to fend for itself a bit more. So I think that they did not do this hoping for a positive reaction from the U.S. I mean, I think deliberately provoking a a state that the U.S. wants to be closer to through executions is not really a way to, to win the hearts and minds of Americans or the administration. I don't think they see anyone pushing back on Iran's push outward. And if we're not going to do it, if we, the United States aren't going to do it, and they don't see anyone else doing it, they're going to do it. And there are a limited number of ways they have to push back on Iran. Uh, and this, this is, is one of them. You stress that all this must be seen in context of several major factors, beginning with two regional wars. Talk first about Yemen and its so-called proxy war that really isn't. Sure. Well, Yemen is, is perhaps the most uh, important factor here for Saudi Arabia. So right now in Yemen, Saudi Arabia, it's called a proxy war. They say that. The press says that a lot. But you have the actual the Saudi Air Force is fighting Houthi rebels, which have uh, Iranian forces with them on the ground, or at least advisors, uh, based out of the Iranian embassy, which is where the Houthis are organizing. And you have Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, uh, along with Sudanese military forces, Uh, and Colombian mercenaries fighting Iranian-backed rebels. And Saudi Arabia is in this position where they have uh, Iranian forces on their south and they have them on their north in Iraq. And that is something that they are not going to tolerate. Uh, They did not tolerate Egyptian influence in Yemen. They fought a nine-year civil war to prevent that, followed by multiple shorter civil wars after or I say they were involved in these, in these civil wars. And Iranian presence in Yemen now would be worse for Saudi Arabia than an Egyptian presence was, you know, 40, 30, 40 years ago. And they are not going to allow that to happen. I think Saudi Arabia will go much further than they already have in terms of their bombing uh, major cities in Yemen and elsewhere to prevent Iran um, to prevent Iranian-backed rebels from taking Yemen. And they see Iran on two sides, and they see the U.S. realigning itself, or almost withdrawing, I think is more, uh, probably more accurate, although that's not the line the Obama administration would, well, that's not what they would ever say they were doing. And they are rightly extremely concerned. And they are fighting uh, overtly in Yemen. Um, they, the Syria situation is much more complicated for Saudi Arabia, but what could end up happening, and what probably will end up happening, is you have this swath of Iranian influence across the entire north of the Middle East, and you have encroachments on the south, and not just Saudi Arabia, but the other Gulf states are, I think, rightly quite quite worried by that. And they would be less worried if they thought, I think, that the United States had a plan to manage this transition. We sell a tremendous amount of weapons to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has a powerful military. But, you know, selling weapons isn't everything. And I think political support uh, goes a long way. And I think that that has not been as forthcoming uh, from the United States for Saudi Arabia as they would like it to be. And the U.S. is also probably, rightly, not uh, particularly involved in Yemen, uh, nor, nor should we be, I don't think. Um, and, and they feel someone needs to act uh, where we're not going to. 
The Saudi bombing in Yemen is blamed by many for the preponderance of civilian casualties and not a great deal of progress. What has that operation told us about Riyadh's military capability and judgment? Well, you know, it's fighting insurgencies as, you know, is always a difficult business. I think the United States probably knows that better than anyone at, at this point. Um, and Saudi Arabia, as of yet, uh, as of now, is perfectly willing to outsource the ground war in Yemen um, to, basically, as of now, to Sudan and, and mercenary groups and local allies. Um, so they have not unleashed their full forces. Uh, I think their capability is probably much beyond what they're doing. If Saudi Arabia wanted to level Yemen to the ground entirely, they could do that if they wanted to. Um, I don't think... Uh, and then I think that they will go much further if they have to. Um, in terms of their judgment, you know, I think that they have actually... They are in, as, as the United States is and many actors are, in a situation... They find themselves in a situation in the region in which there is no good outcome. There are only varieties and levels of bad outcomes. And I think that it makes very good sense for Saudi Arabia to, to fight and do what they can um, to keep either a, a genuinely independent Yemen or a Yemen that's closely allied to Saudi Arabia um, to make sure that that um, remains the status quo. And their status quo power, Iran is a revisionist power, um, and so they're going to go into conflict. No one likes to see civilian casualties. I have no reason to doubt that they are responsible for the preponderance of civilian casualties. I'm sure they are. Um, but they will do whatever it takes, and I think that that's probably an understandable situation. Uh, one thing you know, that, that maybe people don't realize as much about the Saudi-Yemeni relationship is that you're talking about an extremely long border that's entirely non-existent. And I don't mean it's fictionalized or that someone drew it on a, on a made it up on a map and, a, you know, some colonial, post-colonial thing. That's, uh, what I mean is it's a border in which there's no border controls. It's, a, it's when people imagine a desert, like in, in the movies or in their imagination, that's kind of what it is there. And, and, and you can cross very freely between them because there's no real delineation. Uh, it's difficult terrain, but that uh, makes it especially important for Saudi Arabia to make sure that it, it is surrounded by allies and not uh, enemies or, or even frenemies. As a footnote, the Houthi rebels have support from Iran now, but often have been described as relatively moderate, provoked by an oppressive central government, uh, much influenced by Saudi extremists. Earlier, in fact, they got support from Israel. Do you see them as bad guys or good guys? You know, I, you know the idea of bad guys and good guys has, has always made me a, a bit nervous. Um, I say that coming from um, the realist tradition of international relations. Um, and I think that, and I tend to see states and non-state actors uh, as either acting in their own interest um, and acting in their own interest being the thing that, that states do, uh, and even non-states do. I'm not an expert on the internal politics of Yemen. Uh, it was a, an oppressive central government that was, that was overthrown and, and definitely influenced by extremists. But, you know, it was also stable. Uh, well, it's all relative. It was more stable, let's say. So I think that, you know, even if the Houthis have legitimate complaints 
an even legitimate reason for fighting and trying to, to bring down uh, the government. Or right now, it's, 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 almost an, it's almost anarchy, so trying to take over. They might have a legitimate reason to do that. I have no position on that. But I think that Saudi and, and Iran might have a totally reasonable reason for intervening. I think if you're Iran, it is a great uh, geographic location. Uh, that's perhaps the thing that Yemen offers most. It's a, it's a, a great position to be in. They also are not friends with Saudi Arabia. It's not just, uh, it's not one-way animosity from Saudi Arabia to Iran. It makes sense for Iran to want influence at the minimum in Yemen. But it also makes sense for Saudi Arabia to fight back against it. So, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think there are any good guys. That's actually what I would say. I don't think, uh, I think good guys are few and far between especially in Yemen and, and, and especially and probably in the region in general. But I think you see states acting uh, and non-state actors acting as you might expect them to. And, and uh, I try to be as non-judgmental as I can. Let's turn to the civil war in Syria, especially complicated for the Saudis, you say. Why? So the Saudis have no good outcome, political outcome for them in Syria. So you have, they dislike ISIS as much as they dislike anyone. They dislike, uh, I mean, say that they dislike them greatly. They are enemies with uh, Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. They also hate the Assad regime, and they would love for Assad to go. But they're the um, more moderate Sunni groups in Syria that are supported by Saudi Arabia are so far so diffuse and having problems with each other that they are not the major players. So Saudi Arabia, the eventual outcome there is one that is unlikely to be favorable to, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, but they also have no one that they can support. And I think you see this by the fact that they've totally, almost totally withdrawn from that conflict uh, and have moved, moved their military forces and I think their interests uh, to Yemen and to combating uh, Iranian influence in Iraq uh, and, in the, and in Bahrain. They have no side in Syria. And I don't think, frankly, I don't think the U.S. has a particularly good side either, which is why we're, we, as I've said before, I, I think uh, perhaps in our previous discussion uh, on this podcast, that eventually the U.S. would have to with, back away from our insistence that Assad has to go. I think we've started to do that a bit, and, and that we will continue to do that, and Assad will probably end up staying. That's not a good thing for Saudi Arabia. It allows Iranian influence there. Too, but I think that Saudi Arabia, for the most part, realizes that they're not going to realizes that there's not much they can do there, uh, and I think they're probably right. But the one other important thing about Syria is they also see that the U.S. is not willing to be heavily involved, despite what uh, Obama says in in, in speeches and talks about. We are not willing to do that. Iran is. We seem to be willing to, to cede this to Russia and Iran. And as part of a general view you know, from Riyadh of the position of the U.S. in the region, I think what's happening in Syria and the U.S. position in Syria is amplifies these other concerns that they have. We've talked about the questions about the reliance on the United States as an ally. You also point out that problems like Yemen and Syria for the Saudis um, really require deep pockets, which are also now a problem for them. Talk about the impact of plummeting oil prices there. This is an incredibly difficult problem for Saudi Arabia because they need a relatively high 
oil price to balance their budget. The oil prices now are at record lows, but they are playing a very difficult game. So I would say uh, two things about that. One, Saudi Arabia is in part responsible for low oil prices because despite the fact that the U.S. has become virtually energy independent, um, just about almost totally energy independent, and we've now become the number one exporter of, of oil um, in the last couple of months, they have the largest swing capacity, meaning that they could produce more or less um, as opposed to everyone else who is producing everything they can. And they are continuing to produce more and more, which keeps the price down. Now, they're doing this for a couple of possible reasons, most of which have to do with Iran. Um, Iran is counting on a windfall from the lifting of sanctions, and part of that is their ability to sell a massive amount of oil on the open market. So Saudi Arabia is trying to counter that by making sure the price of oil stays low so that Iran has less money coming in and presents less of a threat. The other reason that they might be doing this is to prevent further oil exploration elsewhere because it is no longer economically viable to spend a massive amount of money looking for oil um, when you're not going to get that big return. So they're making a gamble that they can, you know, if not drive competitors out of business, they can kind of ride this out until a point where the prices will start to come back up. But on the flip side of that, you know, they have been in this agreement with their people that they would essentially provide for them in exchange for their acquiescence to an authoritarian government, uh, authoritarian monarchy that governs every aspect of their life. And Saudi Arabia has cut energy subsidies. They're looking at privatizing a lot of the domestic sector. They've explored um, listing Saudi Aramco on uh, the New York Stock Exchange or other stock exchanges. I, I, I could be wrong about the specific exchange. Um, and that social compact is in danger of eroding. It's not going to collapse imminently, but they have to start worrying about if, if it turns out that their support is uh, a mile wide and a millimeter deep, um, that could be a tremendous problem for them as people realize that that social compact is disappearing. And Saudi Arabia, um, unlike Bahrain and some of the smaller states, has not planned for the future um, in terms of developing other sectors. You know, Bahrain uh, and Abu Dhabi realize that at some point this might happen or they might run out of oil. And so they develop these major banking centers and um, try to diversify in a way that Saudi Arabia has not. And so the oil is tremendously important for them. And I think that they, there's a lot of talk of what the, whether this will lead to domestic unrest in Saudi Arabia. I think it might lead to clamoring and muttering and chattering. Um, I don't think that the government is going to fall anytime soon. Um, but the longer prices remain low, the more dangerous it is for Saudi Arabia. And the more dangerous it is for Saudi Arabia, the more risks they will take. And the more risks they take, the potentially dangerous it is for all of us. Uh, and so while the cheap oil is great um, for the American consumer, it does come at a potential political price worldwide in the future. 
Let's turn to the Iran deal itself. So far, so good on the narrow issue of limiting nuclear weapons, you write, uh, with Iran recently following the mandate to transfer a significant part of its nuclear stockpile to Moscow. And most experts did not expect any great blossoming of general goodwill with Tehran. But you find uh, worrisome, uh, very little U.S. strategy on how to handle the new situation the deal created including increased Sunni fears over the end of sanctions, increased Iranian resources to test the limits on its other actions, from ballistic missile development to the seizure, admittedly brief, of uh, two off-course U.S. Navy boats this week. Talk more about the Washington failures you see uh, in the region uh, as it relates to this. Sure. I mean, I think Washington, I think what has the Obama administration has made a similar mistake to the Bush administration uh, in the sense of the Bush administration, they invaded Iraq. There were plans for what happened afterwards that were basically ignored, and there was a failure to, to listen to planning or plan well for the aftermath. And I think the Obama administration, I assume there were people in government who were developing very good, um, clear plans for what might happen afterwards and how the U.S. should deal with them. But what I think we see is that the administration's focus on this deal um, at the expense of, without focusing on the ramifications of it in the region, uh, has, has been very problematic. And I'll give a couple of, of examples. They, going back to what we were saying earlier, I think the administration should have foreseen the Saudi response to this. And you know, Saudi Arabia made no secret that they were extremely against this deal, um, and we did it anyway. And even if, and I think we had this view, and this goes uh, as well as uh, with our relationship with Israel. I think the Obama administration's view on this was, well, we're gonna, we'll sell our allies weapons, we'll we'll arm them to the teeth, we'll sell or give them weapons, and that will help them feel better about the Iranian nuclear deal. But, you know, there are a lot of places you could buy weapons. Um, you know, weapons are not... What the U.S. didn't do was plan for the political realignment in the region and for how this would be perceived by our allies in the region. And I think we didn't expect that Iran would take the opportunity to push everywhere and test limits. Uh, and I think part of that, I think, is part of a general problem that, that the, the U.S. often has is that we can't imagine that anyone wouldn't want to work with us because we think, well, of course, you want, everyone wants a closer relationship with the United States. Everyone wants to work closely with us. Everyone will take that opportunity. Maybe that would be true in Iran, but if we are not, we don't share every interest with them. And so if in Syria we are not willing to um, put blood and treasure on the line, but Russia is, Iran will work with them if they need to. We, Iran will, Iran has tested ballistic missiles in October, November, and December that do not violate the terms of the deal, but do violate the UN sanctions. The Obama administration said we would put in new sanctions on Iran for this, but then we have not said what those will be, when those will happen, or even if ultimately they will happen. And we thought that I think this would bring us together and make the region more stable. And that Iran having nuclear weapons would lead to instability and an arms race. Well, it might have led to an arms race, but, you know, an arms race uh, uh, does not 
inherently make things unstable. And I think that Iran is more free to act. It turns out Iran is more free to act without nuclear weapons than they were with nuclear, they would have been with nuclear weapons. And that part is, I think, part that, that we miss, and I miss, uh, particularly when I, I was strongly advocating the deal at the time, because they realized that if our priority is to keep them from having nuclear weapons, then we will allow them a tremendous amount of leeway to do whatever it is they want to do as long as they don't develop nuclear weapons and back out of the deal. And that might, you know, Maybe that's worth it. I'm not sure. I was never terrified of a nuclear Iran in the first place, um, which m- makes it, it's not something I really wanted to see happen. But I think Iran is, is generally rational. I think what they are doing now is extremely rational. Um, I get very worked up about this, so, uh, if you can't tell. And so I think that we didn't anticipate um, aggressive Iranian actions all around the region, and we didn't plan for how to deal with them because we thought that we would be working with them uh, in a constructive way to solve a variety of problems. And I thought that as well. And I think that the key thing that I missed, at least, uh, as I can, I can I know myself better than, than other people, um, is that we thought that, or I thought that Iran had an interest in stability in the region. But what I think, you know, I missed is that Iran has an interest in stability along its borders. Every state has an interest in stability along its own borders. And it would work with whoever uh, um, it needed to to achieve that. So we do share an interest with Iran in defeating ISIS, in stability in Syria, in uh, weakening the Taliban. We do share a lot of those interests, but our means to achieving them are very different. Um, And our choice of tactics are very different. I think there still could be room to work with them on those things. But they also have an interest in instability um, in the rest of the region. Uh, And that threatens our allies um, and thus should be of great concern to us. And I think that the, the other major problem of the administration is that they have not articulated a clear foreign policy vision for the region or, or generally which would at least allow Saudi Arabia and others to say, well, we understand the U.S.'s perspective. And, you know, if, you know, President Obama had come into office really trying to repudiate a lot of uh, the Bush administration's agenda on um, democracy in in the Middle East, then it shifted on that and supported the Arab Spring and, and supported eliminating some of the dictators. Then it changed it again. And I don't think anyone really knows what the general vision is. And if there's a general vision of what you would like to see in the region, then at least people can try to predict what the U.S. will do. At least they can try to have some sense of understanding, uh, even if they disagree with it. And I think right now it is very difficult to tell what we are going to do, how we are going to act, and who we think our real allies are. Given this week's final Obama State of the Union address, we'd be remiss not to ask your view on what he did say about the Middle East and the Islamic State in particular. Are bands of armed men on the backs of trucks in the desert or their suicidal supporters worldwide 
a threat to individuals, but not to the United States itself, essentially, and not a threat that can be eliminated by any quick military means in any event. Is that a solid basis for Obama's slow but steady strategy? Well, you know, I think that he is definitely right. You know, the Islamic State, neither the Islamic State nor al-Qaeda nor any other terrorist group um, is an existential threat to the United States. Um, there is no group or state on Earth that's going to um, bring down the U.S. government or destroy our way of life or anything um, or, or any other major threat that way. Um, that doesn't mean we can ignore them, because while they are not an existential threat to us, they might be to our allies. Um, and I keep coming back to this, but we can't... Letting our allies fall jeopardizes our relationship with our allies worldwide. I mean, this is kind of almost straight out of Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War. I mean, you have to, um, you have, to have a sort of grand strategy to, to deal with this, and it, it means that we can't sit out this kind of conflict. And, you know, there is a, a perception matters to some extent, and even though, you know, it's well-reported and, and totally accurate that, Americans and most people are far more likely to be killed in a car accident, far more likely to be killed by accident, far more likely to be killed in a, a kind of non-terrorist mass shooting um, than any sort of terrorist act. But the drama of terrorism, the high visibility of terrorism, these are things that um, worry people. And I think um, um, it's, it's, it's an understandable worry. Uh, so I don't think we can sit it out because it, it, it will drag in other states that will in turn drag us in if we just let these things run their course. And there is something to be said. Of, you know, I, I mentioned earlier I kind of come from a realist tradition of international affairs, but to, I always hesitate to go back to morality. But ISIS is kind of so evil that we cannot let them continue to operate in any form uh, and and the realist view on this, I think, would even be that allowing them to operate looks so bad for the United States or anyone that would acquiesce to any level uh, um, of autonomy in any region anywhere for ISIS um, would would just would be such a disaster that that on on any level that it can't it can't be allowed to happen. Um, in terms of the, I do think that it's true. There, there's no quick military solution to eliminating ISIS. We can eliminate their, ter their territorial control. Um, I don't think that's going to happen quickly, but that's, that's really a matter of what you're willing to spend in terms of lives um, to do it. But even if and when that happens, because I'm, I'm quite sure that will happen at some point, that ISIS support is not going to go away, and they will continue to try to strike everywhere they can in acts like we saw in Paris, and they will continue to try to inspire acts like a San Bernardino. And that is going to be a problem that, to which there isn't a military solution. Maybe an intelligence solution, but it is an extremely difficult problem that's not going away. Uh, as for the slow, um, slow and steady strategy, I, yes, I think Obama can make a case that a slow and steady strategy is a reasonable thing to do. I disagree with that. I think that we should we should be moving faster in a more aggressive way uh, against ISIS than we are doing. And I think if we're not willing to do that, we should expect that other actors will will move into place. And I think 
We don't have a great track record of managing the aftermath of conflicts in the Middle East, but I also don't know if anyone else has a better track record. So I think it's, you know, this region, particularly the area that ISIS controls, particularly Syria in general, the situation in 2016 is going to get much worse before it gets better. I think it's going to stay bad for a long time. I don't think there are any good outcomes. I don't think there are any good solutions. I don't think there are any good options. You're catching me on an optimistic day, <laughs> um, I would say. Jonathan Crystal, thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Jonathan Crystal is a fellow at the World Policy Institute and senior fellow at the Bard College Center for Civic Engagement. His recent posts on the World Policy blog are headlined Escalation in the Persian Gulf and Rethinking the Iran Deal. Featured in the new WPJ Winter Issue, you'll find articles on Latin America's evolving economy and culture, the changing face of Cuba, black sites on the Internet, and deadly interactions on the Syria-Turkey border. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on answers from key nations to the issue's big question. What are the challenges determining your country's position within Latin America? World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.